You are listening to the I Am God's Beloved podcast, hosted by Susan Quinnell and Kim Decker. Scripture tells us that we are God's beloved children, that God sees us, that God delights in us. We long to know those who we worship alongside deeper so that we might better understand the breadth of God's love and the expansiveness of God's kingdom. Please join us as we hear the diverse and powerful personal stories of some of God's beloved children. Before we get into the interviews, Susan and I want to share a little about why we wanted to have these conversations in podcast form. For starters, I love the podcast format, and given that we aren't able to connect in person as easily these days, I saw this format as a way to connect with members of our church in a deeper way. I've always loved hearing from women at Women in Touch and at various retreats, and this seemed like another way to dig deeper and learn more from different people. Well, God was setting and stirring that desire in Kim. I was looking for a way in which the BIPOC voices in our body could be heard. I hoped to relay God's good news of love for each and every one of us as beloved children of God. Scripture communicates God's magnificent creation in each of us. God sees us. God hears us. As we know ourselves and one another more fully as children of God, and we become acquainted, develop, and share relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ, within Jesus' love, we have the potential to move towards unity in God's kingdom. So we reached out to folks with our vision. We asked people to pray and consider whether involvement with this project would be life-giving or would be life-draining. We want to honor people with this space, not harm them. Listeners may recall that we had the pleasure of hearing a sermon from Oshetta Moore this summer. Recently on her Instagram, she posted the following. Dear white peacemakers, this is our work together, white peacemaker, to reclaim humanity for both of us and create a counterculture that actively exposes and resists the violence of white supremacy culture, asking us to share our traumatic race stories on panels and podcasts for articles and commentary in small groups or in coffee dates, sometimes feels like you're robbing us of our liberation. Pastor Moore then offered some suggestions about how to best help our BIPOC brothers and sisters. In this instance, it was during the verdict of the trial of Derek Chauvin. And she added, please, please, please practice Christ-like love and do everything you can to protect and preserve the belovedness of your black and brown leaders. This could be one of the most profound witnesses you offer in this moment. Our intention with this podcast is indeed to protect and preserve the belovedness of our brothers and sisters. We respect and dearly love those who have declined to share and those who are not ready to do so. For those who want their voices heard, we pray that this will be a space that God can use for our collective growth and unity. And one final note, <laughs> we ask that you use discretion with younger listeners as some of the stories may be better suited for mature audiences. Without further ado, we'd like to introduce Juliana and Marvin Camerino. Be ready to think deeply, laugh out loud, and maybe even consider what languages will be spoken in heaven. We started the interview off by asking them to share how they met. I met Juliana 22 years He was taking a, a Spanish class. I think it was for six months mm -hmm. or a year. Something four like months. That. Yeah. You can, you can fix that. <laughs> <laughs> you guys are not accurate. Maybe I should start. It was actually more than 23 years ago. It's a true story. <laughs> yes, you might have two different stories about how you how you came together. <laughs> I'm interested in even hearing your individual stories and how you become you today. Okay, so let me read my story. I am coming from a family of eight children. I was born in a place called Turrialba, Costa Rica, which is where professional baseballs are made. My dad was a good businessman, and we live in a 
Very, very comfortable. When I grew up, we moved to the capital of Costa Rica. It's called San Jose. And I was five years old because we lost everything in flats twice. So my parents decided to relocate uh, to a more stable place away from river. That's uh, part of Costa Rica. And then I received Jesus in my heart when I was 15 years old. A few years later, I joined the worship team. I was working on the worship team for 15 years, and I also worked as a youth leader in the local church. During this time, I also worked as a worship leader and distributor of literature to 600 churches around Costa Rica to support pastors in their mission and vision around the, the country. The place I worked for was uh, Christ for the World, which is connected with Christ for uh, the Nations in Texas. So that's, that's my story. It sounds like a very rich and a story where you moved and learned much about your country of Costa Rica in the, all the places that you've lived. Mm -hmm. Juliana, how about yes. you? All right. So I grew up mostly in Owatonna, Minnesota. When I was seven years old, my parents moved there. We'd lived in a Christian commune up in St. Louis Park, uh, Minneapolis area. And they went down to Owatonna to help with a church plant. So I grew up in the church. I accepted Jesus as my savior when I was three years old. And when I was 15 years old, I went on my first mission trip to Mexico with Youth with a Mission. And it was then that I said, okay, God, I have known you as a child, as my savior. And now I decide for myself, I really want to know you as an adult, as my Lord, so I want you to tell me where you want me to go and I'll go there. What do you want me to do? And that's what I'll do. So that was a real turning point in my life of just taking on my faith for myself and saying, yes, God, I want you to be not just my savior, but also my Lord. I continued doing mission trips with Youth with a Mission every summer from the time I was 15 to the time I was 20. One of my last summers with Youth with a Mission, I worked as their kitchen manager in Monterey, Mexico, for all of the short-term outreaches that came down that summer. So it was very intense, and it was a great time. So I did not want to go to college. When I finished high school at 18, I told my parents, I am going to go with Youth with a Mission, and I am going to be a missionary. And my parents said, great plan, except first you need to go to college. So... <laughs> I listened to them. I'm in a mostly obedient firstborn child of five. So I, I listened to them and I went to Northwestern College, but I made a deal with God. I said, God, I can't stand the thought of being in the United States for four years and not traveling anywhere. So I'll come here for two years, take a break my third year and go out with Youth with a Mission for a year and do their training. And then I promise I'll come back and finish the last two years. But when I went to college, I fell in love with where God wanted me to be. And I completely forgot about my deal until with God, until I uh, was walking down the hall uh, my sophomore year of college and my roommate came running up to me and said, George, we have to go to Costa Rica on this foreign exchange program. And I had no idea what she talked about because it was the only day in my entire college career that I skipped Spanish class. But she had gone and it was a God thing. And I felt lightning go through my body at that moment, like just a power of electricity. And God spoke in my heart, not out loud, but in my heart. He said, remember your deal with me? Well, this is my deal with you. So I got to go down to Costa Rica, Nicaragua, and Guatemala, finish out all my credits I needed for my Spanish major or minor. They didn't offer a major at that time. And I met Marvin. So his family was my host family. And so that is how we met in 1993 which is almost 30 years ago. <laughs> See, I said that. <laughs> 30, tomato, tomato. Yeah. <laughs> what, a, what an amazing story, Juliana. It sounds like you're, you have a nickname, George. Yes, George was my nickname because that was my maiden name. For those of you who are listening, if you know John and Karen George, those are my parents here in town. They're well-known. And my sister is Katie Stein, if you know her. 
also would like to know, was there a particular experience, event, or a place that made you aware of the impact of race in our world and in your life? So from mm -hmm. the Rica perspective, you know, skin color doesn't matter. Any foreigner who comes into Costa Rica is welcome as long as they follow the rules. So, for example, you know, we have Asians, Europeans, U.S., and other Central and Latin America people like Nicaraguans or people from El Salvador, Colombia. Mm -hmm. So, race in Costa Rica is not defined too much by politics, but it just tells where your ancestors are coming from. We identify by their nationalities. So Asians or Blacks or anyone born in Costa Rica are simply Costa Ricans. Okay. So if a person was born in a different country, then we identify them as that nationality. So not something else based on their skin color. So that's a big difference in Costa Rica. So in Costa Rica, we see race much like the Encyclopedia Britannica defines as a group of people who have in common some visible physical traits, such mm -hmm. as color, hair texture, uh, facial features, and eye formation. That's pretty much the definition from Costa Rican perspective. So in the US, race somehow is connected with the color of your skin. So here in the US, I'm considered brown, right? Oh, his, mm -hmm. which is interesting concept for me. That's something new. In Costa Rica, I'm considered a white person compared to the U.S. So I identify myself as a U.S. citizen and a Costa Rican citizen, not as a brown America, American. Okay. Yeah. Well, I appreciate so sharing that because I one of the things that has been really important to me is mm -hmm having learned that race is really a social term that really isn't it it's a mm -hmm. construct that really does not help help us understand other people right yeah so so in my personal experience in the u.s has been i would say 20, 120 percent positive. You know, I moved to the U.S. in 1999, yeah, by my loss uh, and all my um, wife's relatives. You know, there has been an unbelievable support for them to transition within this uh, U.S. culture. Uh, I think that was a special ingredient. You know, that helped me to to bring you know, perspective and confidence uh, and blend very well you know, with this beautiful country. Can I break in here? Sure. All right, so from my family's perspective, we have a very interesting background. My grandfather on my mother's side, 100% Swede and had the Swedish language and everything, although my relatives would have moved from Sweden around 1860. So as when they came here to the United States. In fact, they're celebrated in Sweden. They have their own special day called Peter Castle Days. He was one of my relatives who came to the United States and established one of the first um, Swedish Lutheran churches on the west of Mississippi. So my grandfather had a very a strong Christian Swedish heritage, and he married, interestingly enough, during World War II, a 100% German woman at a time when Germany was not the place to be from, where my grandmother was told, you need to not tell people you're German. And when your last name is Rothfuss, people know you're German. Mm -hmm. My grandfather you know, had the very Swedish last name of Bergstrom. He didn't care what country she was from. Uh, he married her and they actually, my grandfather was a very forward thinker. He, they hosted a foreign exchange student from Costa Rica when my mother was in high school. So when I told my grandfather, grandpa, I have met a Costa Rican and I think we're going to get married. He said, hmm, Costa Rican. Well, we don't have one of those in the family yet. Sounds like a good plan. <laughs> This was my grandfather's attitude, and you have to realize the generations that these people are coming from, born just after the turn of the century of 1900. So 
really neat to see that. And my my cousins had already paved the way. I have a cousin married to an African-American and two cousins married to men from Mexico. So my family was very open to this idea that, you know, we are one human race made up of a beautiful patchwork of cultures. And so we really look at, like Marvin was talking about defining race. When I first went to Mexico, I really got this idea of, wow, we all have the same basic human desires, same basic human needs, and we just express it so differently through cultures. And so I looked very much at a cultural construct and a how can we help people appreciate their own culture and keep their own culture and work together. And I'll turn it back over to Marvin, but that was my family's background. Thank you, Juliana. So, I mean, in, in my opinion, you know, when I am asked, what kind of race has had in my life. I can say that God has used Juliana's family and this beautiful country to extend the blessings beyond the borders, you know, to Costa Rica, Nicaraguans, Mexicans, Guatemalans, and even Europeans. For example, Imeas has been supporting all the missions that we have been doing with with Debo and many people from St. Olaf and Carlton and Gustavis. So that's a way also, you know, how this country has been, you know, supporting economically and, and helping, sending us, you know, to be a blessing beyond the four walls of Imeas. The final answer, you know, for, for this question is that I would say the U.S., you know, give uh, equal opportunity to anyone who wants to be a citizen, regardless of race or color or skin. So if you follow the rules, then you can succeed and become one more U.S. person. That's your experience. And Juliana, Mm -hmm. do you have any other experience being a spouse of a Costa Rican? I think it was really incredible. When we first came to the United States, Marvin needed to take a year of English at Dakota County Technical College to be able to start into the college program. His English was not at the level yet. He was just learning it. Dakota County Technical College people were amazing. They said, so Juliana, you've been a citizen of Minnesota, like pretty much all year. I said, yeah, since I was two. And they said, okay, well, you know what? Since Marvin's married to you, we just want to, you know, welcome into the college and we're going to treat him like a Minnesota citizen. Marvin was not even a U.S. resident at this point, and they charged a Minnesota price, which, as anybody who has college knows, is way cheaper than the they charge anybody from outside. So we had such a good experience for his three years of college there, and it was neat to see the friendships that he formed with the different teachers, students, and when we worked with the Uh, immigration people, they were so welcoming. We had the wrong visa stamp on his passport when he came into the country. They gave him a business visa instead of a tourist visa. So we had one month to do all of his paperwork and we discovered that we hadn't done our marriage papers right, et cetera, et cetera. The people with us through everything, they're, oh, don't worry about this. We're going to get you all taken care of. And our experience with immigration was really, really positive. So that was really neat for me to see my own country being so welcoming of people from other countries. And when I lived in Costa Rica for three years, the same. I was so welcomed in Costa Rica. I really uh, appreciated it down there. And it was great to have family down there with Marvin's family. I think that when you have families that can help a person adjust to a new culture and help a person learn the language, learn the ropes, explain, I think it makes all the difference. And that can be something that churches can think about up here as we're dealing with immigrants from different countries. How can we be that bridge to help them learn our culture, to help them hang on to their own language and culture, value that, and at the same time, help them assimilate and learn how to live in our culture, being exactly who they are. How would you say you are processing the events of this past year in our country. For example, in relationship to the killing of George Floyd, the trial uh, and conviction of Chauvin, immigration policies at present, and the detention of children um, separated from their family through their travel, sometimes alone, to the United States. And I guess some of the responses to the COVID-19 virus origination. Tell us how that's affected you and how you're doing. Aside, you know, the color 
of George Floyd, you know, and just treat him as a regular U.S. citizen like anybody else to be, you know, held accountable for it. That this make, you know, the police officer a bad person and, you know, George Floyd saint, you know, I, I don't think so. Did the police officer, you know, have like a racist motivation? You know, it, it, that that would be really hard to answer from a human being perspective. Since we as a human being, you know, we are not God. We just, you know, people who love the Lord and we we do things right. Sometimes we make mistakes. So that would be hard, you know, to say this was the motivation that he followed to do something like that. But I, I would just like to, to put an example. If we look at the story, you know, the woman caught in adultery by the Pharisees and Sadducees, were they not sinners uh, because they caught, you know, her and judged her? No. I mean, Jesus said that the person who caught no sin should throw, you know, the, the first stone. And none of them did uh, because they knew they were all sinners, right? So shouldn't we follow, you know, Jesus' example and say we are all sinners instead of, you know, trying to point fingers in someone who's trying to do his job? So, you know, and, and just to put another example, you know, what about the man who, who was let go free from being caught in adultery, you know? Wasn't he just as guilty as she was, right? So why do we let, you know, for example, George Floyd in this case get out free from his actions when he made some mistakes as well? So we we're talking about human being, right? And it's a very difficult situation, right? Uh, but I'm just trying to compare, right? You got the woman who, who was... Uh, found, you know, and seen, and you got the other people are trying to kill her, you know, at the same time. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. So, um, so how do we, you know, how do we define justice in this scenario? You know, it's something that we all thinking, right? It's, it has been impacting, you know, United States, many scenarios and many situations. Was it okay, you know, for people to protest about the event that happened with Floyd? Uh, you know, I would say, yes, of course, you know, this is uh, America. We all have freedom. That's what freedom means, that you can provide your opinion, right? It can be good, it can be bad. But, you know, freedom in this country, you know, is important. And people have the right to express their feelings, right? So as it, was it okay for those people to riot and loot? loot? Right? Is no, of course not. You know why you want to hurt your own people. You know we all Americans. We should support each other. You know uh, we we should love and help each other. This is America, and this this uh, country has been used as as an example. You know for freedom. So I would say, you know, that's like you know in the crowd in Jesus' time has speak you know up the stones and thrown them at the woman, right, declaring themselves innocent and only her guilty. So uh, just to give you more perspective about this, let's say, you know, that this wasn't a police officer. Let's say that this was a preacher, right, doing his job. And he made a mistake. You know, what if, for example, I use Ave, which we love so much, you know, he's doing a great job in mass for, for years. You know, what happened if Ave, you know, made a mistake and he falls into adultery, right? You know, will we stone him? You know, what will be the position of the church, right? Uh, should we restore him or should we stone him? So, you know, will we give, you know, the other person, you know, a free pass? You know, let's look at this, you know, from Jesus' perspective. What should be, be the response of the church, you know, for a person who made a mistake? Should we riot or should we pray that God is speak to the person's heart to restore, you know, him spiritually? So, again, this is a really tough situation. And I know that many people have their own opinions, but as a Christians, right, we, we still need to be stick to the truth and justice in God.
because you know God will love loves uh, Floyd and also love the police that many people are trying to send to jail, right? Jesus will die for both of them. If Jesus were here today, he will he will forgive him both of them. I appreciate you sharing your perspective and the God's truth about forgiveness and love for all. Juliana, do you have anything you'd like to add? Yeah, I think sticking just with this subject in particular, with race in America and how do we stand on things, Eowyn and I were just reading a book that takes place the last 20 years in Haiti. And in Haiti, of course, they have serious racial issues as well. And it was fascinating how the missionary, this is a YWAM book, it's in their International Adventure series, and the missionary was from Texas. And during one specific prayer meeting that he was having with the pastors of Haiti, he felt like God was calling him to stand in for the French and the Portuguese and apologize and repent and ask for forgiveness for the atrocities that the French and the Portuguese had done to the people of Haiti. So he was not a part of it. He was from Texas um, and not at all in that time period where these atrocities had happened. And God just put that burden on his heart to pray and repent for atrocities that have been committed by people of the same skin color of him, though they were not his relatives. And so he did. And it was very powerful. And then the Haitian pastors, what they did is they forgave the atrocities that had been committed against the Haitians by the French and the Portuguese and pronounced forgiveness over the pastor in their place. And then the Haitian pastors asked for, they repented and asked for forgiveness for the acts that the Haitian people had committed against the French and the Portuguese because they had uprisings against them. They had killed them. They had witchcraft rituals where they did different things that were very evil against the French and the Portuguese. And so there, and then the pastor, the missionary forgave those pastors. And so they took care of their past. And in this past year, I've been listening a lot to a podcast called Give Him 15 by Dutch Sheets. And Dutch Sheets has been traveling the United States for decades now, going to places where things have happened in our history, whether good or bad. And in the places where atrocities have been committed, he and his other prayer warriors with him have been repenting for the people that committed them. And they have been asking forgiveness. And they have gone to places where very good things have happened. And they have said, we stand with these prayers that have been prayed over this land, that this land would be a land that sends out missionaries to the whole world. And we we are going to go with these um, declarations and we stand with them, with our forefathers. So they have repented for the evil and they have stood with the good of our forefathers. And God has been working that in my heart, how there's always two sides to every coin. All of you who are married know that if you have a conflict, there's two people involved in the conflict and not a single one of them is completely innocent. Both of them need to repent and ask for forgiveness for healing to take place. And in the story in Haiti, the healing that took place, the pastor and the missionaries, the pastors, Haitian pastors and the missionaries were able to work together then at a whole new level leave the past behind and work together in a unity. And that city that they're in called St. Mark, I told Aaron, I said, hey, events took place at the beginning of the 2000s. If St. Mark has really uh, been regenerated, restored, and made different because of these acts of these missionaries and Haitians, we should probably still be able to see the effects today. And sure enough, you can look up, you can Google St. Mark Haiti, and it has known, it is known now today in 2021 as a peaceful city where it is safe to live. And the imports of Haiti don't go into Port-au-Prince, the main capital. They go into St. Mark because that is the safe place to do commerce. And so you have this reformation of this entire city that started with people repenting on both sides, people working to restore relationship, and then working in the churches, the government, the education system, the health system, the neighborhoods, the families, all all of these areas. They ask God, give us influence so that we can 
help bring reformation to Haiti and specifically to our city, St. Mark, and God did it. And that's really my prayer for us in America today. Let us continue as Dutch Sheets and others have for decades, continue saying, yes, we repent from the past, but at some point we need to say, it is forgiven, we're done repenting, let's join hands and let's move together and let's reform this country for the future, it, more of God's image. And let's, you know, let's see this place different through God. Thank you for sharing the story of restoration in the people of Haiti and your hopes for the future. You've share, shared along our conversation about your faith. How has or has your faith in Christ been challenged by some of these experiences of this past year? My faith, to be honest, hasn't been challenged in the sense that I still in personal relationship with God. Of course, you know, the COVID situation, you know, has been uh, used by the enemy to somehow cast division, you know, in the body of Christ. I, I ask myself, you know, many churches have been impacted with all the protocols that we need to say uh, follow. And I totally understand, you know, for security reasons and some people, they have their own limitations. They can be sick. But I mean, you can't, you know, continue doing this, you know, for the next few years because what is happening is, is causing, you know, a lot of division. You know, like, for example, I ask myself, you know, how long Emails is going to continue, you know, reinforcing the mask, right? Like for me, to be honest, when I go inside the church and I try to breathe, it's, it's a little bit difficult for me, you know, maybe for other people not. But again, we all use the mask to protect those who have special limitations, you know, can continue doing this for the next 10 years, you know. So, so I pray. And I, you know, and I ask the Lord that he, you know, restore this uh, freedom that we have enjoyed for many, many years. You know, COVID has been used, you know, by the government, you know, to some somehow as some extent for po politic political gain, you know, in control. And, and I don't like that. So I'm praying that the Lord, you know, opened the eyes of even the government, you know, and they they understand, you know, that COVID is going to be part of our lives, like influenza, like any other call. You know, at some point, uh, we all have to get over. And, and, and of course, you know, pray that the Lord restore the health of many people that have been impacted, you know. But... My faith, you know, in Jesus, I can tell you it hasn't been impacted because we know where we're coming from and where we're going to, right? Home, this is not home. This is just a temporary place where you and I were living. So, you know, our eyes has to be in heaven. And that's where we all one day, all languages, a color, a skin will not matter. We're all going to speak one language, you know, and if we speak, you know, multiple languages, it doesn't matter. Somehow we will be able to communicate, you know, but we all will be singing one song, you know, the government and the COVID and all the sickness will have no place. And that's the way I pray. That's what I want to see United States. That's what I want to see Costa Rica. That's what I want to see the rest of the world, you know, in one place, worshiping the Lord one day, one voice. I think Spanish is going to be the main language, by the way. <laughs> it, that would be great. <laughs> I think it'd be great if Spanish was the language in heaven, but I have some learning to do. <laughs> How about you, Juliana? Do you have anything you would like to say? Yeah, I think my faith in Christ has been challenged not like believing if God is good in all of this or does he have a plan in all of this, but rather I think I felt challenged in my response to everything. 
God, how can we be peacemakers in the midst of this? In the midst of a country that is so divided and you have people just yelling at each other on Facebook and in the news and everybody's painting everybody else that doesn't think the same of them as, you know, as evil, as so wrong, so stupid, so whatever you fill in the blank. You know, God, how do we as the church, how do we show love to the great diversity of thought and people that exists within the church? And I'm not just talking about the color of melanin in people's skin. I'm talking about their political views. I'm talking about the way they live, their response to COVID, and so many different things. So I've really been just praying to God and say, God, you know, how can we as a church help be a voice of unity in the midst of this? And how can we love each other and love our neighbors? So in the midst of this, course, with COVID, our missions are shut down. We can't travel to countries. I'm very sad. We were inviting a distant relative of ours from Sweden to come to us this summer, and we realized that Biden has closed off Sweden. Swedish people can't visit the United States, and she could really use some love right now. She's lost her husband, and we're like, oh, this is so hard, so sad, you know, our all the different border situations and, and dealing with, you know, people are watching entirely different news sources. So we can't even have the same conversations. We are not even basing our information on the same facts. And people just don't know. And so like, God, how can we be a voice that speaks truth in the midst of this? So I'd like to back up one second to the question about the border crisis. When I was teaching up at Minnehaha Academy, we studied human trafficking for two years. That was our emphasis on human trafficking. And one of the biggest places where human trafficking happens is borders. Borders are a huge issue and people don't even realize that. And I've been thinking about putting these ideas together. Okay, we've got the racial inequities that happened as a result of slavery in the United States back in the 1800s and the 1700s. It would be really tricky to try to make everybody justly and fairly you know, somehow pay back all of that that happened in the past. But is there a way that we could all get together and pay forward against human trafficking that's happening today at our borders? You're looking at all of those unaccompanied minors. Those are, could we pay forward into that. So like I said, a lot of people don't realize this because they haven't studied human trafficking like we did for two years at Minnehaha Academy and realize the amount of human trafficking that happens today. The number of slaves that are here in the United States today is staggering. So I was thinking about that. You know, God, how can we as a church pay it forward and help eliminate slavery, help these um, children that have been trafficked at our borders, um, get back with their families who, because of whatever situation they're in, may have sold them in the first place. That's a very real thing. If you've worked in Central America, you know about that. And we've worked in Central America for many years. We know about how these things go. So how can we get them in other safe places if their family isn't a safe place? So I think as a church, we have a huge challenge ahead of us. And I would love to enter into conversation and see how can we help these? How can we pay forward what we can't pay back? I appreciate this conversation because one of the goals that we've had in doing this podcast is that the more that we get to know each other fully face-to-face, <laughs> our hope is that we can recognize the belovedness in the other not just ourselves, and that in trying to really hear and see each other, that then we, and only then, do we have some of the potential to move towards God's unity. Do you have a verse or a specific story in scripture as you reflect on Christ's healing and hope for our lives? Yeah, I like Psalm 125. Five uh, and six. I want to let Juliana read that for me. So okay. the translation says, And now, God, do it again. Bring rains to our drought stricken lives. 
So those who planted their crops in despair will shout yes at the harvest. So those who went off with heavy hearts will come home laughing with armloads of blessing. Yeah, uh, as we discussed before, you know, COVID-19 has impacted communities, people, churches, and not only here in the United States, but around the world. And unfortunately, you know, many of the states, uh, they have been locked down, you know, in our country. And, you know, uh, churches, you know, people who wants to gather together, you know, and seeing they can't even do that anymore as a result of all this, you know, COVID-19. So we know that God always has a purpose and he wasn't, uh, you know, COVID-19 never surprised him, right? He, he knew that he this was coming. And I know God is using this to wake up his people. So, you know, and this verse encouraged me in the sense that, you know, I know that there is a remnant crying out, you know, for the United States, mm -hmm. you know, around the world, you know, to bring fresh rain over this nation and around the world you know, uh, in our spiritual drought that we are experiencing on many people. And, and, you know, this verse says, those who went off with heavy hearts will come home laughing with uh, armloads of blessings. So I think there is a revival that is coming, and I feel like we need to be ready for it. And many people call this the you know, the glory of the Father, you know, the, the, this revival is going to be something that we haven't seen in our entire lives. Your scripture is very hopeful. Juliana, do you have a specific Bible story or scripture that's impacted you? Yes. My life verse is Philippians 1.6, which says, being certain of this, that he who began a good work in you will continue it until the day of completion. And I just want to say, I think that God began a good work in this world with Adam and Eve. God began a good work in this country with the founding of our nation. There are people that declared in 1609 that this country was going to bring the gospel not only to the natives of this country, but around the world. And the United States has been used strongly for that. Anybody who has read mission biographies from Youth with a Mission and other missionaries, it's amazing the number of them that come from the United States. And even from our own state of Minnesota, the mission classic Bruchko with Bruce Olson out of Minneapolis being one of them. People who went into other cultures and they respected the culture, they learned the culture, and they found how to present Jesus in the culture and then helped Stone Age cultures come into the 20th century, 21st century now, with their culture intact instead of it imploding because of the power of God. And so I know when God starts good works like he started, he's got a plan to bring it through. So we've had the first great awakening, we've had the second great awakening, and now like Marvin said, we're crying out, God, Bring on that third great awakening where our culture can once again come into alignment with what some of our very founding people said at the beginning. This country is going to impact the world for Christ. And we're praying that it does because anytime a country comes into alignment with God's purpose for it, it explodes out. It impacts the world. Did you know the king of Poland just dedicated Poland to the Lord, rededicated Poland to the Lord and said this country is God's country in 2018? Pope John Paul II is the one that caused great reformation in Poland because at that time Poland was under communism and Pope John Paul II is, was Polish and he went to Poland and said, how is it in my own country that we can't have religious freedom? And he called out and the Polish broke off the bonds of communism. When we were in Sweden, our distant relative Emily told us with tears running down her face how the king of Sweden had converted to Christianity couple thousand years ago, several thousand years ago, and he had said, this land of Sweden is 
belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ and the Vikings stopped their pillaging. We're talking reformation of entire cultures and countries. And so that's what we're crying out to God for. You've started something here. You complete it. We want to see Christ as the head of this nation and the church once again, a brilliant place where all people can come and receive love and healing and forgiveness, and they can be introduced to Christ here in our country and be sent out around the world so that the worldwide revival, biggest we've ever seen, really comes to pass. We're hopeful, slightly. How healthy or unhealthy do you think the town of Northfield and the state of Minnesota are as it pertains to racial matters, equity, opportunity, systemic racism. Yeah, that's a that's a it's a good question. You know, I think you know the many like new philosophies has been introduced, you know, over the years in the in the United States. You know, this is impacting Northfield, Minnesota, many states around the country, you know. Way people, you know, uses the words, it changes, and the meaning that is behind, you know, those words, they can, you know, create division, they can impact other people, you know. So we have to be, right, careful how we use that. So, and now, you know, lately, we have been introducing the, the critical race theory in the schools and in our society. So, you know, I ask myself, you know, shouldn't we be, you know, more like Christ centric? If you think, you know, about the critical race theory, you know, we're talking about Karl Marx. It's a person that never, you know, he didn't believe in Jesus, right? And sometimes we embrace those philosophies and, and you know, it just doesn't produce life in, in our you know, environment. So, so I think, you know, the, the idea uh, we should teach, you know, uh, more about biblical foundations, you know, in our church and just, you know, follow that the word of God, you know, for, for the entire church, for children, you know, for, for young people, for everybody. Uh, and just trying to be careful about that. A few years ago, uh, just to confess a sin, in Costa Rica, people speed a lot. And, you know, and for example, I can tell you that in my entire life, I have got three tickets, you know, in Costa Rica. Here, you know, one day I was in two occasions, I was pulled over by a police officer, right? And, and he told me, sir, do you... Realize, I apologize for it. So, you know, but he was very professional. You know, they both of them, they were very professional. They they never were rough to me. They were very polite. You know, I they, they asked me for the insurance and my driver license. I provided that. And after checking, you know, my history uh, here in the U.S., uh, they realized I have no tickets. So at the end, they said, uh, you know, you have a, a wonderful day and please just, you know, be careful with the speed. And, you know, so that was a, a good experience for me as a, as a Hispanic, you know. Um, I, I didn't think that police officer cared about the color of my skin. He was just treating me as a U.S. citizen, you know, applying the law the same to everybody. So. How about you, Juliana? Yes, I would say technically as a U.S. resident, at that point, Marvin was just a resident, not a citizen. It's true. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. yeah, I think, you know, our experiences here in Northfield, Minnesota with Marvin have been very good. So we haven't had a single negative experience with anyone. We gave the example of how DCTC accepted him as a Minnesotan before he was even a U.S. resident. And my family accepted him. All of our friends love him. My friends love Marvin. And we've had good experiences with IMS, the Immigration Services. Abe is totally right. If you ever, you know, post-COVID get a chance to go to an immigration and naturalization time, it's, it's like a church service. 
It's so beautiful. And I came away from that loving my country and going, yes, that's right. There are so many people who want to come here for a reason because of what our Statue of Liberty says. Give me your poor. Give me your downtrodden. We really are a country that opens our arms up to the strangers, as the Bible calls them, to people from foreign countries. And you know what? That's a biblical principle. That's because our country's laws were based originally on God's laws. And that's a heritage we can be proud of. And I, I would have to say our experience has been totally positive here. In talking about Northfield, I'm going to go down to a little bit smaller microcosm and talk about Emmaus. As you know, Emmaus is a predominantly white congregation. And I'm interested in learning how Emmaus might be able to improve in the ways it cares for and journeys with people of color in our congregation. Is there something you'd like us to know, a blindness that we might have? or a practice that is hurtful, how can we as a congregation move forward together in hearing and seeing each other and all peoples? Here in Minnesota, you know, in my understanding, right, as a, as a Hispanic, is that, you know, the this state has, like, pioneered, right, by by, you know, Caucasians, you know, people from Sweden, people from Germany, from Norway, right? Mm -hmm. so, I, I'm not surprised, to be honest, you know, to see how so so many people white, right, in the Emmaus or any church here in, in Northfield. Uh, I mean, it's expected. So, you know, in San Jose, Costa Rica, for example, you know, if you go to any of the churches that we have, you know, around this, this uh, San Jose, I mean, you are going to see, you know, probably 95% Costa Ricans and maybe, you know, 5% Caucasians, right? So it is expected, right, that if you are in Costa Rica, you are Costa Ricans, right? So so that's, that's, that's normal, you know, it's expected. That's what I'm trying to say. So mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think, you know, from Emmaus, just, you know, talking about Emmaus, I think, uh, emails needs to make sure that they are, you know, uh, understanding God's vision and mission, right, uh, for this church, for Emmaus Church. So, and it, it doesn't matter, you know, if, you know, if God is telling Emmaus, uh, now you're going to reach out, you know, the Hispanic community, or you're going to reach out the Black community or the Asian, you know, the most important that Emmaus need to understand as a body of Christ, right, is not only what Abe think, but it's about what God is putting in Abe and the entire congregation as one body, right, to follow that call from God, because that way we are going to be effective and we are going to be, you know, in God's will, trying to develop this heart that God has for Emmaus specifically. So, so I would say, you know, not to be worried about, you know, how many white people we have in mass, how many Hispanic people we have in mass, how many black people, right? But rather that what is God's heart for mass as a, as the body of Christ. Juliana? Yeah, I would say I love how Martin Luther King Jr. said that he dreamed of a day when his children would not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And I think that's the most important thing, not to look at each other's different levels of melanin and make assumptions about based on, you know, critical race theory. Oh, you got darker skin, therefore you must identify as an oppressed person. Oh, you've got lighter skin. You better identify as an oppressor. That doesn't follow the Bible. It loves diversity. If there's anything I've learned from studying nature as a science teacher for years is that diversity is huge in nature and God must love that. And as a linguist studying languages, I go, wow, there's so many different languages. God must love this. So I think it's important not to try to divide people and put them in a box and say, you must think this way, but realize probably our greater diversity at Emmaus is in our way of thought. 
We have liberals. We have conservatives. We have people from a Lutheran background, people from a Baptist background, crazy charismatic and Pentecostals like us. We've got all these different backgrounds. And you know what? We can best be the body of Christ when we don't focus on levels of melanin, political parties, etc. But let's focus on the character that he's forming in us and forming in us as a church. I think we will best serve our community by following Martin Luther King's advice of not looking at the color of people's skin, but looking at the content of their character. Anything you would like to close with that you'd like us to know or challenge us to think about? Yeah, I would encourage, you know, Emmaus continue, you know, not only gathering on Sundays, right, but to continue gathering together face-to-face, one-on-one. I'm a manager, and I work with my teammates and, you know, the, my reporters, right, like this, like a virtual. It's not the same when we are working in Eden Prairie in the same office and we have we share a pizza, you know, we, we share a Coke, we share jokes. And, you know, the, I think that's important in Emmaus. I kind of miss a lot of those kind of meetings, you know, where you remember in the past, we have a Sunday in the afternoon, we bring food and everybody talking and, you know, so just because, you know, there are some protocols and regulations, right? Obviously, the enemy is smart, and they can use that against the church, right? But where, you know, we have uh, someone who is very powerful, the Lion of Judah, right? Marching in front of Emmaus and Northfield, people who love the, the Lord. So I think, you know, being together and having contact one-on-one is important. At least for me, I think it always has been very important. And I would encourage, you know, Emmaus not to stop doing that just because we have many protocols causing kind of, you know, a lot of distance between the body of Christ. I think I would say ditto on everything that Marvin said. One thing I realized during the COVID pandemic is that my life naturally intersects with a grand total of one person from Emmaus, Annika Richardson, because she teaches A1 violin. Mm. If I did not purposely... Uh, arrive at Emmaus every week, I would see nobody from Emmaus. Kim Decker can tell you how the women's retreat was like the best women's retreat ever this year. And we were all so emotional because we had not seen each other's faces because our lives don't intersect. So that to say, a church community is a very intentional community. You intentionally show up and you make these friendships So I've realized that my community as a person is, if it's during COVID pandemic, is limited to my neighborhood. And we had very intentionally, very literally took the verse in the Bible that says to love your neighbor as yourself to mean our literal neighbors. And so for the past six years, we have made a purposeful effort to create a community in our neighborhood where we know Every single one of our neighbors within about a block radius in every direction, two blocks in a few directions. And so we that's been a wonderful community during this time of COVID because our neighbors are who we see. We can all stand in our yards and talk six feet apart outside, no problem. So, But I've just realized that community is very purposeful. Let's get together and let's purpose to affect our city together. I really thank you both for being so uh, honest and straightforward and sharing your perspectives. I, too, believe that God has created our world as a community, and my prayer is that we are able to look at each other face-to-face to see the image of God in the other and to look to God for that, for bringing us together. And thank you for taking us into account to be part of this interview. We appreciate it. Yes, I think the basic human human desires is to want to be heard. It's been such a gift to hear from both of you. Thank you. Thank you for your yes. time. Well, it is, it's been an honor for me too, to really sit down with both of you and hear from both of you. 
And I really thank you for taking the time. Thanks for listening to the I Am God's Beloved podcast. Special thanks to Emmaus Church in Northfield for supporting this project. We hope you will join us again next time.